Hi, and welcome to Theology for Millennials podcast. My name is Eric Marvin, and I just happen to be a millennial, and I'm excited about discussing with you all the different theological topics and doctrines uh, over the course of this podcast. So stay tuned. Well, thank you for tuning in to Theology for Millennials. Eric Marvin here, as always, and uh, real excited to be talking with everyone today about the existence of God. And the, the big question for today is this, and it's the title of the episode, which is, is there, is there a God? And I just want to talk about that. But before I get into that, uh, just some cool things, um, interesting things really have happened uh, to me over the last couple of weeks. Of course, um, just like everyone else, uh, been in the middle of this pandemic, uh, this the coronavirus outbreak. Uh, it's it's been really a strange uh, strange time. Uh, as a result of this, what has actually happened is I uh, recently resigned from my position uh, at the church I was working at. Uh, like I said in my introduction episode, I work at, I was working as a life group pastor, uh, or really my official title was associate campus pastor. Uh, but I ran like the small group ministry. I also ran a discipleship program uh, at the church I was working for. Uh, but since then, uh, since this outbreak has kind of come, uh, I have decided to resign. And what's uh, kind of interesting about that and actually kind of cool about that, it gives me an opportunity to spend a, a lot more time with my family. Uh, my wife is actually going to be going back to work um, and we have uh, two little girls. Uh, one has just turned two, uh, Emma, and then the other, Maddie, uh, just is about to turn three months old. So I will actually be staying at home, watching them, uh, raising them. And so I'm really excited about that and uh, getting to spend that time with them at such a young age. So really cool opportunity for me. Uh, but just even uh, besides that, this has just been a hard, um, hard couple of weeks. You know, I, I was watching the news today and uh, the the news uh, had said that this was day 30 of the shutdown. And I it really, it hit me. I didn't think that it's been 30 days. It's hard to believe it's been that long. Um, for me, it's actually gone by quite fast uh, because of all the different uh, pieces that um, have kind of been put into motion for me over the last few weeks with working and then uh, working from home and then deciding to resign and then also thrown in the middle of that I've had uh, uh, my da- my da- oldest daughter has had her birthday and just been trying to connect with a lot of family so for me I've actually been quite quite busy but I know for a lot of folks um, I've I got friends a lot of friends that have uh, it's it's been a lot longer um, it's been quite a bit longer actually so so wherever you're, you know, whatever you're dealing with out there, whether this has been a stressful, busy time or whether it's been a lonely uh, time, I just I hope everyone knows that you're not alone in this. Um, it's 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 an interesting I got a lot of thoughts about it. I don't know. I'm still processing the whole the whole thing. I'm, I'm processing a lot of different you know, uh, political arguments as to whether or not this was the right or wrong decision. I've been processing through a lot of uh, social questions in my head about the effects of this shutdown and the effects of isolation and uh, also just the effect of uh, living in fear um, has really been an interesting thing. I've, I've was struck by the fact that uh, on Easter, uh, we didn't have any Easter services and struck by the fact that this is the first time in my life I 
spent Easter not in a church building. First time ever, 31 years old, never have ever spent an Easter outside of a church building uh, on Easter Sunday. And this was the first time and did something kind of cool, actually. Uh, my wife and her family, her her parents and our, our two girls, we actually met in a park, uh, just the, the four, six of us, if you count the two little ones, and had kind of a, we had a sunrise, basically Easter devotional type service that I got to lead. And I was privileged to do that. And it, hit, it struck me that this is probably more like the original church that we read about in Acts than anything I've ever experienced in my life. Small group of believers huddled together in a public place, uh, remembering what Christ had done for us and what Christ did uh, for the for the movement, the Christian movement over the last two thousand years, and how all of this was started by a by an event. It, it something happened. Christ rose from the dead, and boom, this movement just just takes off. And it it just it struck me as as interesting that. Uh, you know, 2020, it's not really 2020. I mean, we, we, they, they think, um, most theologians I've read, uh, assume that Jesus rose from the dead around 30, between 30 and 35 AD. And so, yeah, so it's like 1,990 years or something like that. So, uh, but long time that this movement has been going on and, uh, it all started with an event and it struck me just this past Sunday uh, just how interesting of a service it was and how interesting of, a, of an Easter Sunday it was uh, because of how closely it resembled probably what the first church had to do when they first met for Easter. So pretty cool. And uh, what the, you know that, that really leads me into my next uh, topic that I want to talk about. You know, uh, we, t- we can talk about Christians talk a lot about God and Christians talk a lot about Jesus and, and all that. but, uh, we always kind of talk about it with the presupposition that he exists. And we, we, we presuppose that there is a God. And it is an underlying assumption that Christians have. And not many Christians tend to uh, want to get into the discussion of, on whether or not there is a God. They just assume that there is. And even worse, a lot of Christians will use bad logic and bad philosophy to, to, to basically prove their their. their uh, position. Uh, you know, they'll say things like, well, how do you know there is a God? And I, I know many Christians that would just simply say, well, it's because the Bible says so. Well, how do you know the Bible's accurate? Well, because God wrote it. So you're saying the only reason you know there is a God is because a book that was written by God says there is a God. And that that's just not, that's just not good reasoning. That's not, not good logic. And honestly, it is not a good assessment of the evidence that is out there uh, for this question, it, it's it's just it's just bad theology. So, uh, what I want to do today is again, and I don't I don't um, I'm not going to try to dive really really deep into these because you can go really deep really fast. Um, in my study of this, I stumbled upon a couple of YouTube videos that were quite intense, and so I'm not going to try to be as intense or as deep. Uh, but I, I do want to just really just kind of briefly summarize these arguments uh, and kind of basically I'm going to try to put my thoughts into a very uh, simple words. And this is kind of what I think about them. And these are and then these are some of the conclusions I draw from from these thoughts. So uh, essentially, the the question is, there a, is there a God? Uh, there's a lot of um, there's there's a lot of different discussions, arguments, lines of thinking, if you want to say it like that, 
about this, but there are three that strike me as the most compelling. Now, you can't answer this question uh, with pure observation. What I mean by that is this, is we are talking about um, supernatural forces at play. We're talking about something that in all reality, it, it is, it's unknowable in the sense that we can't fully comprehend the vastness of God. And, you know, if, if the Christian worldview is correct, then God is outside of everything we know, right? He is outside of time, space, outside of, of every possible dimension we could think of. He is, uh, the, the word that the Bible uses is holy, set apart, different, unique, uh, in a way that he is not at all like us. Therefore, what that means is that we can't fully comprehend. Now, the same thing is true of if you believe that there is no God, but you also have to come to, you, you have to develop theories on how the world started. And those theories involve unknowable um, aspects. There are things about how the world started that you just can't possibly understand. And uh, you never will. Uh, in my study of this, looked into some of the different theories. And I, I, I mean, you get into quantum mechanics and cosmic gases and uh, matter, you know, eternal matter that's always been. And it, it's really, really confusing. And the truth is, is none of it is stuff that you can reproduce in a laboratory. None of it. I cannot, uh, I could not make a video of me recreating this stuff using um, science. So because, because of that, because you can't recreate any of this in a laboratory, what that means is that you have to then, um, you have to understand that what we're doing is we're, we're interacting basically with philosophy. We're not trying to deal with... Um, and, and I say this, I'm, I'm going to try to say this carefully, and I, I hope this doesn't come across as confusing or vague, but we're not dealing with cold, hard facts. We're dealing with theories, uh, with things that not, you know, um, <laughs> I grew up in kind of a, a more traditional uh, upbringing, and a lot of times traditional uh, pastors will say things like, beyond the shadow of a doubt, meaning there's absolutely no doubt this thing is cut and clear and perfect and uh, there's no questions that need to be asked anymore because it's just all been figured out. The truth is when it comes to this question, uh, th that's, just not, that's just not true. And I know a lot of Christians that would probably gasp right now and think, well, Eric, that's, that's heresy. Uh, you, you can't say that. You can't, you can't doubt. Um, let me just tell you this. Nowhere... In the teachings of Jesus, does he say that you can't doubt? Nowhere does he say that. Uh, there are believe there, there are some. There's one thing really. I believe that there's no reason to doubt. There is. I I would say there is one thing that does stand the test of all criticism and critique, and that is the the resurrection, which is what we just celebrated on an Easter. But Jesus never said you have to have every single answer figured out beyond the shadow of a doubt in order to follow me or be one of be, be a, a, a disciple of mine. Never said that. So to sit there and to say there is a God and here's the proof, um, it just, it doesn't exist. Okay. So you, you have to be willing to be flexible. You have to be willing to admit 
that there are parts of this that are unknowable, uh, and, and to and to treat them otherwise is is just foolish, and it's it's bad it's bad philosophy it's bad theology, and it is inconsistent, and so uh, we need to um, we need to acknowledge that. So, with all that acknowledged, uh, here are the three arguments for the existence of God that to me are the most compelling and the most logical. And I'm, I'm just going to share them quickly with you. And then I want to uh, sh- uh, share with you uh, what conclusions I come to and, and what argument I really think is the most um, compelling to me personally. And uh, But these are the three most, um, probably most understood, most well thought of arguments. And that's this. There's the first one, which is the cosmological argument. The second one is called the theological argument. And the third one is called the moral argument. There's now there, there's actually a fourth one floating around there called the ontological argument, and I just really don't like that one. It doesn't make sense to me. Uh, for others, it might make a ton of sense, but one of the presuppositions of the ontological argument is that you already believe there is a God, and so <laughs> it's it's kind of silly because it's not really an argument for the existence of God when you are assuming the existence of God within the argument. And I just I don't know. For some people, it might be compelling and it might. It, it might work for you, but uh, for me, I just I just find it to be a little bit um, uh, just not as effective as these other three. And so, the three I'm going to focus on are the cosmological, the theological, and the moral argument. So, the cosmological, or also kind of known as the the argument of causation, basically it says this: it presupposes that there are. Let me uh, let me get the data out for you, so you know this all. It presupposes a couple of things. It supposes that every effect has a cause. The effect caused depends on the cause for its existence, and nature cannot originate itself. So basically, it basically is kind of the way I think about this in my head is everything is moving, right? And in order for something to move, it has to be pushed. You can't there's nothing that just really all of a sudden starts moving. Like if you walked into a gym, uh, a basketball gym, and as you're walking in the door, a basketball goes bouncing across the floor, you wouldn't look at that and deduce that it just has been doing that for all eternity. You wouldn't deduce either that the basketball caused itself, that it forced its own self to start bouncing across the floor. You would you would come to the automatic conclusion within a millisecond, uh, someone must have thrown that, or someone must have bounced that, or shot that terribly and missed, clanked it off the rim, right? And so you look at the world around us, and every every single thing in the world is the effect of something else, okay? Uh, I'm I'm sitting here right now, and I'm actually sitting in a, like a swivel chair. And even as I'm doing that, I'm uh, even as I'm talking right now, I'm swiveling back and forth. Well, there, my chair isn't swiveling back and forth on its own; it's being caused by my foot on the ground. My foot is causing the chair to move. Now, my foot is not moving because it just it itself is moving. It's moving because muscles are moving it, which are moving because uh, there are uh, you know brain. Uh, waves, basically. I, again, I, my wife would explain this a lot better, but essentially my brain is causing you know, my foot to move and then there's things that are happening within my brain that are causing my brain. To, anyway, it could go on and on and on and on, but everything is the effect 
of a cause. And when you take that to its logical, the, the logical beginning, because uh, on a very, on a macro level, think about this, on a macro level, the universe is rapidly expanding, okay? It's moving outward. It, everything's getting farther and farther away. We are literally flying through space and time at, it's it's an astronomical a number for, for speed, right? It's just, we are flying through the universe and it's all moving outward, which again, if you take that to its logical beginning, you, you have to, you come to a singularity. Everything at one point was one singularity. Everything at one point had to be caused. Uh, I believe it was Aristotle um, that coined the term an unmoved mover, meaning that something, something, um, had to cause the whole universe to start. Something put this all into motion. And that something had to be, uh, it wasn't able to be caused, right? It had to be an, uh, it had to be an unmoved mover or something that is outside of this whole cause and effect timeline that, that we're in, something outside of, of us. Now, uh, some people will say, well, there's, you know, cosmic gases. There's, there's counter arguments to all these, by the way. Uh, some people would say it's, you know, there's certain eternal elements that we just don't understand and they are what caused it. To me, what makes the most sense is that the unmoved mover is God. That the Christian worldview says God is outside of space and time and our understanding and everything we know about this world. He's outside of it. He is the causer of everything. He is what spoke it all into existence. We, uh, I, I've talked about Genesis chapter one before, uh, and and I believe that uh, again. There's a lot of parts of Genesis that are, uh, you know, translated differently and interpreted differently. But you really can't get past the point that in Genesis it's very clear that in the beginning the thing that the person that caused all this was was God. And so that's the cosmological argument. Now, the theological argument is the next one. And this one's really interesting, too. This is basically theological. Uh, Theo is a Latin, it's the Latin word that basically uh, means it's the idea of purpose or order or that there's um, basically it means that there is design, purpose and order. That is the that's the basis of the theological argument. Um Think about this. Uh, I believe it was Thomas Aquinas. Maybe maybe it wasn't him. It might have been someone else. I'm blanking on it now. Uh, but there was a theologian uh, who basically uh, presented an argument at one point that he said, if you're walking along in the forest and you spot a stopwatch, you don't assume that the stopwatch just just came into being, right? It, that it just became into existence. You look at the stopwatch and you look at the intricacy of all the gears and all the different moving parts that are intricately placed together. And you see, as you, as you observe it, you see design. And because you see design, you assume a designer. You, you look at that and you think to yourself, this, this obviously has a purpose. This obviously has a design. It has order. Um, it, it all makes sense. It all works together. Someone, some sentient being must have put this together and designed it. 
Now, you can take that all throughout through through all of nature. Like when you look at the world, there obviously seems to be design. There are so many systems that work perfectly in harmony together and they're purposeful. They make sense. There's order to it. And when you look at that, you really logically you got to come you got to at least I should say I shouldn't say you got to but for me, I look at it and I just think it's got to be designed. It's, it has, there has to be someone who designed that, who put that together, who thought that up because it's just so detailed and intricate. Like when my wife and I talk about uh, medicine and the human body and things like that, and she knows a lot more than me. Again, she's a primary, uh, primary practice physician, so she's very uh, knowledgeable of all these things. Me, not so much. Uh, but when she talks to me about and when we discuss all the different inner workings of the human body and the way all the different systems work together in harmony, um, it's it's amazing. Like the one that always blows my mind is this, is that when you think about your blood, the blood in your veins, it has to be um, it has to be able to move through your body. Right. It has to be able to be pumped by your heart. If your blood gets too thick, it clogs. Okay. Now, when you get a cut, your blood has to be able to to coagulate, right? To to thicken up and and stop the bleeding. It actually has to also clog. Otherwise, you get a little cut and you you'd bleed out. Uh, you know, you 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 scratch your knee on the pavement because you fell down, and you you would lose all your blood if it didn't clog in this in the way that it needs to in order to stop the bleeding. I find that fascinating. I look at the this the system the blood system the I, I can't remember the the scientific term for it but the system in your body that controls all the blood and the way it works and what it does for you and I just think to myself man that is so perfectly balanced and intricate and it's designed and there's purpose to it and your blood isn't just there it's not just a byproduct it it had to be there now again I know there's again there's counter arguments to all these things there's Certain things that uh, people will say, well, there's no need for this, or there's certain uh, organs or body parts or things where people will go, well, but but we don't actually need this. And again, I'm going back to my original kind of what I was saying at the beginning, the assumption or, or kind of the premise of all this is that there's a lot of unknowables, right? So I'm not trying to make, you know, statements beyond the shadow of a doubt. I'm just saying, look at the overall picture. And when the when you look at the think about the theological argument, and when you think about the design and the purpose of the world, it to me I just find it incredibly logical to to come to the conclusion that someone must have designed it. So first one, cosmological argument, it's basically the the uh, line of thinking that says everything's moving, everything has to, is an effect of a cause, and if you take that all the way to the beginning, there's had to be an uncaused cause or uh, the the word sometimes is is that is the phrase that is used often is first cause uh, or an unmoved mover the theological argument is you look around and man everything has design everything has purpose and order and stability and harmony there must have been a designer there must be someone who put this all together because there is just so much intricacy the third is an interesting one and that is the moral argument now the moral argument, or it's, it, it really can also be uh, some. It, it can really almost be called the anthropological argument, uh, 
because it really is based on man. And when I say man, I mean humanity. It's based on humanity. And essentially it goes like this. When you look at humanity, the overall human race, there is an underlying moral uh, law that is written into every single person. And it's it seems that the vast majority of the human race lives by a moral code. And when you when you think about that, you have to say that code has to be ba- like there has to be a standard, right? There needs to be something that that is based on an an objective, unmoved standard that we can compare our actions to. Because if we don't have that, then then where is where is this morality coming from? Did it just come from nothing? And if it came from nothing, does that mean it can change? So my example is everyone for the, the, the vast majority, and obviously, again, obviously you can point to people who don't think this way, but if you look on a macro level, the vast majority of people believe that murder is wrong. You can't kill someone. It's, it's bad to kill people, Okay. And that's been pretty true for a long, long, pretty much through. I, I know that there was a lot of violent, uh, a lot of violence in ancient times. I understand that, and I get that. Uh, but I, I truly believe that the vast majority of the human race, for the vast majority of the time we've been in existence, uh, man, uh, humanity has always had a moral code, a, a moral standard, and so when you look at that. Uh, I would say that that standard has to be based on some kind of unmoved, objective uh, kind of beacon, if you will. It has to be based on something. It has to be compared to something. It's the question of where did the idea of right and wrong come from? Just not even what is right and what is wrong, but think of this is just the very fact of that we say some things are right and some things are wrong. Where does that even where does that even come from? Uh, another way of even thinking about it too is that the um, the human race seems to have a soul. Uh, it, there seems to be something within the human race that is more than just physical. Uh, and I think this is incredibly true, especially today. I think there's a lot of proof of this today. Uh, when you think about this, in America, um, there is... Policy and 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 policy and standards and law that's being written based on moral arguments. Okay, that means we are writing into law certain policies and standards, and it's based on the culture's uh, moral standings. Meaning, we think this is right, therefore we need to write laws based on that, so that everyone has to follow this sort of standard. That that line of thinking doesn't exist in any other part of nature. You know, right? it, that, that sort of uh, mental processing, you don't see that among other species. You don't see other species developing moral standards and then saying, we're going to make sure that everyone abides by these because this is the moral... It, it just, it doesn't happen. And Again, this this moral argument can really get deep really fast, and I hope I don't get too deep uh, to the point where I actually lose myself. 
but the, the truth is, is when you look at the human race and when you look at humanity, you have to see that there is something about us that sets us apart from everything else. And the very fact that we can sit here and discuss things like what is right, what is wrong, what is moral, what is not, is there a God, is there not, to me that points to there is something about the human race that is, um, I'm going to use this word, that is supernatural. It is outside of the natural world because it doesn't line up with anything else within the natural world. And I, I think that's our morality. And when you look at that, it, there has to be something that all that is based on that comes from something. And I think as a Christian, where, where I would personally say that that comes from is that that comes from, uh, I went back when in uh, one of my old, older episodes, I talk about how we are created in the image of God, right? We are created to uh, reflect him. We are uh, almost uh, like an idol. We were created to bring him glory, to reflect who he is. And then when we sinned, we... Uh, we were we, we fell away from that. We missed the mark. We rebelled against him, and now we're kind of a uh, we're not fully human anymore in the way we orig- we were originally designed to be. But I think there are remnants that are left over from that. I think there are pieces of us that are still intact that uh, that are that kind of in that supernatural state. Meaning, we all have a sense of morality, and I believe that is a direct result of the. <laughs> of the image of God that is all that is pressed into our souls. Um, and so that to me, it just makes logical sense that if you look at the overall morality of the human race and you look at man, it has to all be based on something. It has to be, there has to be a standard for which we base right and wrong. And I believe that standard comes from, comes from, uh, from, from God. From, from the image that he had created us in. So now, obviously, you might have listened to all these and you might be thinking to yourself, yeah, Eric, I don't believe in any of that. Well, to, to be honest, and again, I might, if, if I said this in, in front of a bunch of Christians, uh, some of them would, would be okay with it, but a lot would probably want to shoot me. There are counter arguments to all of these, okay? There's actually good counter arguments, <laughs> some of them. There are some good counter arguments to all of these that you need to wrestle with. And that is the point of this whole podcast. The point of this whole podcast is not to give you an answer so that you now just have an answer that you can spew back at someone to, to prove yourself right. That is not the point of what I'm doing here. The point of what I'm doing is I have presented to you one side of the argument, one side of the answer to the question, is there a God? What I'm asking you to do now is to go and to begin to research on your own the counter arguments, uh, to research on your own, even my arguments, fact check me, put me to the test, criticize and critique, dive in and dig and, and, and figure out what you know and what you believe based on the study and on the evidence you see. Um, don't just take my word for it. You need to really look into this on your own. Okay, uh, I'm going to end my discussion there because we are at 32 minutes. Uh, I think I've given you quite a bit of information to chew on and to really dive into. So again, think about those three arguments, the cosmological, the theological, and the moral argument uh, for the existence of God. And uh, I really hope that um, it, it, I really hope it brings you down the same path that I'm currently going on because here's where, here's where I go as a result of all these. 
when I when I study these and 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 meditate on these, here's here's where I come to. I come to the conclusion that I was put here for a reason, that I was caused, that there's purpose that, uh, to my existence, that I was designed, that my but that my morality is not some sort of random evolved chemical imbalance in my head, but rather that my morality comes from the image that I was created in, uh, the image of God, a benevolent, loving, personal God who wants to have a relationship with me. And that's where I, that's, that's the direction I go in when I look at these arguments, when I look at the, the evidence and when I look at what is, I ask myself, what is mo- when, when taking all of this into account, what is the most reasonable outcome? And the outcome I see is that I am the product of, uh, a, of a cause. Uh, I, am, I am in movement because God caused me to exist. I have purpose. I have design. Uh, I am not here by an accident. And that my morality is not something that's just a chemical uh, reaction in my head. It is something supernatural. And, it, and it's, it's really, it's meaningful and it's important. And it's something to be valued and treasured. So that's where I go. That's the direction I take as a result of these arguments, as a result of, of these discussions. And uh, I, I hope it would bring you down the same path because I, I seriously, I love being down this path. I love, uh, I love God. I believe he exists. I believe that he is who he says he is. Um, and I, I can't wait to continue uh, in our podcast, Theology for Millennials, to begin to talk more about this. Uh, now that we've kind of discussed this question, is there a God? I, I plan on going down, going down the route of beginning to discuss and talk about the different attributes of God, uh, the things that are communicable, the things that, that we can actually do, uh, or we can, things. these are ways we can be like God, and also the things about God that are incommunicable, ways that uh, He interacts and the, the attributes He has that we can't even touch, we can't even get near those things. And uh, so I'm really excited. I'll probably do one, one podcast for each because they're pretty broad topics, they're pretty big. Um, but I'm ex- in fact, you could do you could do podcasts all you know you could do an infinite amount of podcasts just on those right there. Uh, but anyway, I plan on doing two. Really excited about talking about the different attributes of God and who He is and what we have uh, what has been revealed to us from Scripture and from uh, from the world and from everything else uh, that we can see. And uh, I'm really excited to bring that to you in the near future. Okay, but for now. As always, this is Eric Marvin for Theology for Millennials, signing off. I'll see you soon.